All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. The media and the left in general reacts to Republicans taking back Virginia and their response tells us a lot, not only about the way they ran their campaign initially, but also about the lessons they learned, or maybe I should say did not learn during this last election cycle. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. All right, first things first, I have to apologize to my audience because I said in our last podcast that we were actually going to, this week, we were going to do an in-depth breakdown uh, with, with a good friend, somebody that works on this, Christian Hines. He does, he does great analysis of elections, and we we're going to do a, a deep dive by the numbers and really figure out why things turned out the way they did. And obviously, we're very happy as Republicans with the way the race turned out in Virginia, but we wanted to learn a little bit more about why that happened and what sort of lessons that we can take away from that. Unfortunately, I am traveling right now. There was a death in the family and uh, I wasn't able to be in Virginia this time for the recording of this podcast, but we wanted to make sure that we we're still getting you, you know, content um, every, you know, twice a week on the same days. And so um, I'm recording this one. We're going to do, we're going to do kind of an overview of the left wing response to what happened in Virginia. And then I should be back in Virginia a little bit later this week. And we will uh, deliver on the podcast that I promised you last time. So apologize for that delay, uh, but wanted to make sure you knew the reason why. So let's go ahead and jump in real quick on, on how the left has responded. So the last podcast, one of the things that we really delved into was why did Democrats lose, right? Not just why did Republicans win, but why did Democrats lose? Because typically, whenever we're talking about election results, both of those factors come into play, right? Your own side does some good things and the other side makes some mistakes. And what we saw this last election cycle, one of the things that I pointed out was I felt like a lot of people that showed up to the polls, um, especially in Fairfax or Loudoun counties, a lot of the people that showed up to the polls, they were the sort of people that are, are not necessarily hardcore Republicans. They are the sort of the people that did not start off this election cycle automatically thinking they were going to vote for Glenn Young and Winsome Sears, Jason Mieris, or whoever the Republican um, candidates were in the respective districts. These are people that you know could have gone either way potentially. And what a lot of them found out is as they were voicing concerns, and I'm not just talking about things like critical race theory, I'm not just talking about things like transgender bathrooms, right? as they were voicing concerns about advanced placement classes, right? Was their kid going to be able to get into, you know, AP math? Um, where, where are they going to be able to get into Thomas Jefferson High School? The moment they brought up these concerns, especially concerning some of the new standards and some of the new methodologies that Democrats have been pushing for the last two years, they were told they were racists. Right. And this was especially shocking for minority parents 
who were told that they were either racist or they were a mouthpiece for racism, right? And it angered a lot of people because I I think many of them assumed that they were showing up, they were reasonable people, and they would be treated like they were reasonable people. And instead, they just got called racist. And it made a lot of people mad. So they were mad about two things. One, they were mad about the policies that had taken place that were adversely affecting their children. And they were mad about how they were treated when they brought up those issues, Right. And I think both of those things ended up being motivating factors for a lot of people. Right. Does that account for the entire win? No, there's always multiple factors that go into a race. And you talk to voters in different parts of the Commonwealth, you're going to get different answers for what they focused on a lot. But we all know education was a key issue. And I believe it wasn't just policies that people disagreed with the Democrats on. It was how the Democrats handled the criticisms of their policies. Right. By just calling everyone a racist and moving on and saying it was phony outrage. So they lose the election. And here's the important thing to understand. This is the first time in over a decade Republicans have been able to win statewide in Virginia. In fact, the last time we even got close was Ed Gillespie running against Mark Warner during the Obama administration. That was the last time we got close right, without actually winning. And we were within a couple percentage points. But almost every other time a Republican has won statewide, they've lost by significant margins, all right? Sometimes as high as losing by 16 points, right? And then Donald Trump lost by 10 points in the last presidential election, right? So Democrats looked at Virginia as it has officially become a Democrat state. And look, they had a lot of good reason to believe that. Voter turnout in urban areas was higher than it had ever been. It was predominantly going Democrat, you know, when, when uh, Bob McDonald had won the governorship of Virginia, he had won um, Loudoun County. He had won Chesterfield County. I think he'd even won, I think he'd even won Fairfax County. And, and now no Republican even dreams of winning Fairfax County, right? Even Glenn Youngkin lost Fairfax County by a huge margin. So the, the important thing to keep in mind here is that something different took place Um, And and it allowed Republicans to get over the finish line over a variety of issues, but education, the Democrat response to criticism of their policy was a big one. Now, here's what I find especially interesting, and that is looking at the postmortem. So again, Republicans were going into this race. There wasn't a lot of, I mean, a lot of people thought we were just going to lose again. And not only did we win the governorship, we won the lieutenant governorship, which nobody thought we would win. We won the attorney generalship, which nobody thought we, we could win. And then we had to take back six seats to win the House of Delegates. Nobody thought we were going to do that. We took back seven seats. And we had several other races that were razor thin. I mean, it is not hard. If you go back and look at the numbers, it is not hard to see a pathway to us winning 10 seats. So this this really was a great night for Republicans. And so the question would be, is that after after you lose pretty much every major race that you thought you were going to win, right? Dems thought they were going to win all three. They thought they were going to keep the House of Delegates. If anything, they thought there might be a couple races in the House of Delegates that they would lose, but they would still retain, maintain the majority, all right? None of that happened. We, we swept the top three, took back the House of Delegates. So you would think that there would be some degree of introspection, both about the policies that you ran on, the way that you messaged those policies, and the way that you handled criticism from the other side of the aisle. So here's the question. Did that take place, right? Have Democrats gone through this process where you see some Democrat commentators coming down there and going, you know, hey, look, we we might need to rethink some of this. And the answer I will tell you is that you've seen that, but very, very few and far between. In fact, Van Jones, who was in the Obama administration, very, very left wing, 
but has also has also been a little bit more honest about you know some of the problems on college campuses and things like that. He actually came out and said, "Look, I think part of the problems is Democrats, left wing progressives, have come off as being obnoxious and arrogant, right?" And I, and I actually think that was a pretty good analysis. He was he was trying to do a helpful introspection for Democrats so they could learn how to win. But what is the overwhelming response? by Democrats and by some members of the press to include some members of the press with the Richmond Times-Dispatch that favor themselves to be middle-of-the-road moderates or just the wise sage that comments on everything that goes on Virginia. What has their response been to this? It's been to essentially double down on the same thing that I believe caused them to lose elections in the first place. And that was this arrogant disregard for anybody that it isn't fully bought in to the most progressive elements of the Democratic Party, the most woke progressive elements of the Democratic Party. If you weren't fully on board, marching lockstep in line with it, then what do they say? You're a racist, you're a bigot. That's what they said in the election. They lost the election and then they came back and you're actually seeing people like Joy Reid and her guests get on a major news network and say that Winsome Sears, the first black woman elected lieutenant governor in Virginia history, is just a mouthpiece for white supremacy. You, you, have, you have other prominent figures in the media and in social media getting on there saying that this was all because of, and in their words, right, uneducated white women that are essentially racist and don't want to see any change. Right? This was bigotry. It was uh, Fox News engaging in alarmism and extremism. And, and all of us stupid rubes in Virginia bought into it, right? That's their answer for what happened. And on, on, on one side, this frustrates me because anytime I see something that is horribly inaccurate and quite frankly insulting, it's frustrating. It's irritating to see because ultimately, we, I think most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us would like to have a situation in this country where people can sit down, have a conversation, potentially disagree on issues, explain themselves, and both sides, even if they disagree, can walk away and say, I don't agree with that person, but I understand a little bit more about where they're coming from. Right? But no, in, instead, it's just this, no, 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 you're all fascist. You're all bigoted fascist. That's the only reason. You, you, that's the only reason they can possibly come up with that you wouldn't vote for Terry McAuliffe. Like, quite frankly, I mean, let's be honest here, Democrats. Terry McAuliffe is one of the most, like, slick, right, like, transactional, croniest politicians within the Democratic Party. Now, look, I'm not saying, you know, he's not a nice guy in person. I'm not saying he doesn't care about his wife and kids. I'm not even saying he doesn't care about the Commonwealth. But let's be honest. Terry McAuliffe is a career politician. He's a machine politician. And all you have to do is read his book his own biography, which he wrote, to know that he's willing to do some stuff that most people would consider to be kind of crappy. Right? This is why a lot of people, even the Democratic Party, don't really trust Terry McAuliffe. But no, after the election, the only possible reason you could have voted for Glenn Youngkin right, was because you were, you were some sort of white supremacist, bigoted you know, moron. And, and this, is what they, this is what they keep saying. This is what they keep going to social media. It's what they keep going and, and writing op-eds and articles about. And, and again, like I said, initially, a part of me finds that frustrating. But another part of me wants to say, you know what? Keep at it. Seriously, keep at it. 
Because quite frankly, as I've said before, a lot of us that have been involved in politics have been dealing with this. And and I don't just mean like strong conservatives or or, or liberty-minded people like myself or libertarians. I don't mean just us. There's a lot of other people that are a little bit more middle of the road that have been dealing with this kind of rhetoric coming from the left. I mean, it, it shocked me one session as we were having a floor debate. And, and I'm used to the left coming after me. I'm used to it be, because I, I don't mind getting up there and engaging in the floor debate. And I'm not going to sit there and be called horrible things and not respond. But I've got some friends in the General Assembly and, and their, their method is a little bit different than mine. They're not as confrontational as I am. I, I'm not saying that makes them wrong. I'm not saying that makes them, you know, it, it's just, it's a different approach. And, and you typically need lots of different approaches when you're making a legislative body work well. But I'll never forget watching one of my colleagues who is, uh, uh, he's a Republican, um, but, but he's, always, he's always really done his best to try to be, to, to give the other side the benefit of the doubt, to be polite, to be professional, to work across the aisle when he can. I've, he's always done that. And, and, it's always, and it's always someone I've looked at him, I'm like, man, you know, he really, he really does try to be everything that the left claims they want to see out of Republicans, which is to say, you know, more nicer, more civil. He's all those things. So how did they treat him? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, we're in the midst of a floor debate and he's talking about some of the concerns that he has on education policy. And wouldn't you know it, some of those same concerns came up in this last election cycle. And I'm watching him as he's being very precise He's being very careful to try to make sure that he's wording and he's framing his argument in a way that is comprehensive, but respectful. And what did the other side immediately get up and do? And these are people that have known him for years, know what kind of a person he is. What did they do? Did they get up and say, hey, I I disagree with you and this is why? No, it was, you're a racist, right? And sometimes it was overt and sometimes it was subtle, but they all got a kick of getting up there when the cameras were rolling and talking about what a horrible human being he was, or at least implying it. And now, and now that they've lost an election, right? They are doing the exact same thing. And like I said before, I think a lot of people, for those of us that have been just kind of engrossed in this for years now, we've always seen this other side. We've always seen this other side. We, we've, we've always seen the same people that will project one thing and be all nice, then show up and, and really make just the most slanderous accusations about people that they know are none of the things that they're claiming or none of the things that they're hinting at. And yet they've done it. But the more they do this, now, now again, if you weren't paying attention, day-to-day politics, if you're not the sort of person to pull up the live feed for the General Assembly and watch our committee meetings or our floor debates, then you probably wouldn't have seen this. But we see it all the time. And now what is happening is the voting public is getting to see this across the board. They're starting to see that the the garbage that they get fed a lot of the times either in in mainstream media networks or in a lot of times their local newspapers. And I could talk forever about local newspapers that, that they've grown to trust as being, well, okay, yeah, I know the New York Times is biased. I know the Washington Post is biased. And, and they may even say, I know the Washington Examiner is biased or, or the New York Post is biased. 
But my local hometown newspaper, they, they're pretty good until you realize that they're owned by a lot of the same conglomerates that own those other papers as well. And no, they are constantly feeding you a particular narrative. They just happen to be a little bit more subtle about how they push it. Well, now, right, it, it's all going away. Nobody's confused anymore. Nobody's confused anymore because they can see firsthand somebody who, again, last year might have voted for Joe Biden, who showed up to the polls and voted for Glenn Youngkin and the first black woman to be lieutenant governor of Virginia and the first Cuban-American to be attorney general of Virginia. The person that voted that way in this election cycle is now being called a racist and a bigot and uneducated and ignorant and stupid and giving into white supremacy. And you know what? As, as much as I feel for those people that they're, they're having to endure this, to some degree, I, I overall, the, only, the, the silver lining in all this is that people are starting to, to see firsthand that a lot of the people that they were told were blowing things out of proportion or being hyperbolic, or a lot of people that they were told were the divisive ones were not actually the divisive ones. They were just the ones being honest about what was actually going on. Because that, that, has, been a, that has been a tactic for so long now within the left-wing press that the, the left will do something that is a major departure from, from some sort of cultural, economic, educational norm. And the moment Republicans say, wait a second, wait a second, I don't know if I agree with that. All of a sudden, what do, what do the headlines say? Republicans pounce. Republicans engage in divisive rhetoric, right? The mere pointing out when the left is doing something that the left is telling you they're not doing, that all of a sudden becomes divisive. It's not that what they're doing is divisive. It's that we're pointing it out. That's the thing that's divisive, according to the press. And now a lot of parents came face to face with that, and they came face to face with the sort of response that many of us have gotten used to getting. And I think, I think many of those same voters thought that, okay, once we make our voices heard in this election, once we send a clear message to the Democratic Party, and again, I think there was a lot of crossover votes this year, more than we've had in a long time in Virginia. I think there was a lot of crossover votes where you had swing voters, you had undecideds breaking for the Republican ticket. I think there was a lot of those people that said, you know what? We're going to send a message to the Democratic Party that we don't like we don't like what they're doing, we don't like some of their policies, and we don't like the way that they're advocating for their policies. And that will send them a message and hopefully get them back on track. And what was the response? Well, the response for the vast majority of the left-wing media, of left-wing politicians, was not to say, okay, we got the message. It was to come back and say, no, you must, you, you're just a racist. That's why you did it. And, and honestly, we shouldn't be surprised because for so long now, the left has gotten away with just claiming that anybody that disagreed with them was a bigot. And let's face it, there, there is a certain benefit. I think it's totally immoral. I think it's unethical, but there's a certain benefit in creating a situation where you have convinced enough people that all of your political opponents are not just wrong on policy, but they're bad people, right? They're evil. They have nefarious intentions. Because if the person that you're debating with, or if the, if the candidates that voters are considering, if this is not a question between two policies, 
or, or even to just kind of basic political philosophies, if this is a question between a good guy and a bad guy, well, then not only do you vote for the good guy, but you automatically disregard everything the bad guy says because they're a bad guy. So even if they say something that seems to make sense, disregard it because they must have evil intentions. And that's what happens when you convince the other side that your opponent is a bigot. And what's amazing to me is that as, as fiery and as obnoxious as some people on the left think I am, I have never once made claims about any of the people running against me for office that many of them have made against me. I mean, I think about that for a second, right? I'm supposed to be the bad guy. I've never once got up on the House floor and called my fellow colleagues bigots or racists or sexists. I, I, I've never said they were in league with terrorists. I've never compared them to segregationists, even though that's what their party used to stand for. But I've been accused of all of those things by the same people that then want to go cry to the press the moment we call them on something they're doing. Even when we don't call out, even when I don't call out their intentions, and sometimes I do question their intentions, but most of the time I question their policies. And even when I do that, no, no, then I'm automatically a divisive one. Doesn't matter that they come back and then say, I don't care about children or I don't care about working moms, even though, you know, I was raised by a working mom, right? None of those things matter. And so when you get used to making those sort of intellectually dishonest arguments, when you get used to not questioning your opponent's policies, but instead just demonizing them by engaging in relentless ad hominem attacks against their character, the whole purpose is to once again create a voting demographic, a voting public that sees your opposition as just evil. And so there's no reason to listen to them. There's no reason to consider them. There's no even reason to have a dialogue. This is just about defeating your enemies. The problem is, is that when you are building that on a bedrock of lies and misrepresentations, eventually people do get wise to it. Eventually people recognize that, you know what, if you were, if what you said was true, or if your policies were as good as you claim they are, then we should be able to expect some results. Not only that, but we should be able to expect you to be able to argue and articulate for them in such a way that doesn't require you to automatically slander and defame anybody that might disagree with you. And while people might have a certain degree of tolerance when you're doing that to another politician, they sure as hell don't have a lot of tolerance when all of a sudden you're doing it to them. So I, I have friends on the other side of the aisle who I disagree with on a lot of policy, but have always treated me and, and the voting public with respect. And I'm always happy to talk with those people, to work with those people when we can agree on something, to politely and civilly disagree when we do not. But what we are seeing right now in Virginia, and we're seeing it all across the country, but Virginia is just a bellwether of what's to come, is that more and more voters have become the target of that sort of intellectually divisive argumentation which says, I'm not going to address your concerns. I'm just going to demonize you. So then I don't even got to worry about your concerns. They are fed up with it. They are not going to accept it. And the biggest part is they're starting to realize if that's the sort of argumentation you engage in. And by the way, I, I will say this to my Republican colleagues as well. When conservatives engage in this sort of argumentation, I don't like it either. But what the voters are recognizing 
is that that sort of, that sort of methodology has become preeminent amongst a number of prominent Democrat voices that for years they were told were the tolerant, compassionate, coexisty ones within the political spectrum, and they're realizing that is not the case. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I'm asking you to listen to this part because it's going to be important. Because right now we're at a unique moment where a lot of people that it assumed for a long time that Republicans were more of the divisive, abrasive ones and Democrats and progressives specifically, not just Democrats in general, but woke progressives were the more tolerant, open, accepting ones. <clears throat> that whole facade has been ripped down. They're starting to realize that no, Republicans are not as evil as they were told. And a lot of these AOC, Bernie Sanders type are not as tolerant, compassionate, open and accepting as they portray themselves to be. The next most important thing we can do for those of us that truly value individual liberty, and now we have an opportunity to do this in Virginia, both with the way we legislate and with the way we argue for what we believe. There's a missing component here that the connection needs to be made in the voter's mind, and that is this. What makes the sort of person that would completely demonize their opposition so dangerous is not simply the rhetoric. It's the question of why do they want the power in the first place? Because someone can use bad tactics to get power. And, and I think we can all admit that both sides have used bad tactics to get power. Bad arguments to get power. But the real question is, is what do they, what do they want to do with the power? And what we need to understand and what we need to be able to portray is that what makes it truly dangerous is that the same people that are willing to demonize other people, to literally treat them as if they are evil, if they disagree with their policies, they are also the ones in this moment in time that desperately want political power so they can compel, threaten, and coerce you to do what they want. And that is significant. That is, that is quite frankly the most significant point of this entire debate that is going on in the country right now. It's not just about tax policy. It's not just about supply chains. It's not just about vaccines. It's not just about CRT in schools. It's about which side, when you look at a candidate, do they, want, do they look at the purpose of political power in order to protect your rights, your property, your liberty, so you can live your life the way you want? Or do they want to take power so that they can control an ever-growing sector of society, whether it be your healthcare, your kids' education, whether it be the job you have, the sort of contracts you can negotiate, how much of your life do they believe they need to have control over? And they may want to sell it to you on the grounds that as long as you give them this control, they're going to take care of you. But the number one question that we have to ask and the number one question that we need people to start to consider is does it make sense to hand power not only over to people that are willing to slander, libel, and degrade other human beings simply because they disagree on policy? It's not just a question of it's wise to give power to those people. We then have to ask the question, how do they intend to use it? And what we know now is the way they intend to use it is by taking more and more control out of your hands and into theirs. And once they have it, the real question we need people to ponder is, what's the likelihood you will ever get it 
back. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. I want to thank you for joining us where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Again, I'm going to be back in Virginia next week. Looking forward to do that deep dive of the elections. We're going to go into the numbers and ask the questions. Why did things happen the way they did? We're going to focus in on some of the counties that everyone's got question on, whether it's Loudoun County, Fairfax County, some of the rural counties, Virginia Beach. We're going to look at all of that so that we can not only analyze what's going on now, but we can take away those needed lessons to make sure that we continue to do well in the future. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.